Hello and welcome to What a Picture, a movie podcast where we go through the sight and sound greatest films of all time critical week by week and discuss what makes a great film great. I'm Brian. I was I was pantomiming. I'm Hannah. Yeah, they can't see you. Pantomime. They can't see That's me. The problem. That's why it was a really half-hearted pantomime. Oh, just kind of okay. did a little wiggle. You couldn't do your full-hearted pantomime just for me because I can see you now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would want your reaction <laughs> recorded for all to hear. That's fair. So today... anyway, that was our really really good introduction yeah. into what we're watching today. Absolutely. Today we are talking about. City Lights, the Charlie Chaplin film from 1931. Yeah. And Hannah discovered five, ten minutes into this that you had seen this movie before. Yeah. Well, so sort of remember that you had seen a Chaplin and just couldn't remember which one was that the. I I knew I had seen a Chaplin. Um, and I at first I was like, Brian, oh, the tramp. I've totally seen Charlie Chaplin play the tramp. And then you were like, well, that's him and everything he does. So I was like, okay, maybe I hadn't. And some of it seemed familiar. I mean, he, I'm not, I don't watch a ton of pantomime. I don't watch a ton of silent films. So it wouldn't be surprising if like, it was just a different one I had seen. I mean, I knew it was Charlie Chaplin. Um, but then when we met um, his love interest, who is a blind woman, I'm like, mm, unless there's multiple Charlie Chaplin films where he is a tramp and in love with a blind woman, I've definitely seen this. And I, I don't, I think honestly it was, um, I took a high school film studies class. Um, and so it wasn't, I mean, it was a really fun class. It was taught by one of our like sports coaches. And so he added in the category of sports movies, which I, I mean, frankly, like the nineties and aughts brought in a lot of really good sports movies or really good. Good's not the word. Iconic. That's a nice way of saying like had a large impact on culture, but maybe not a large artistic influence. That's true. Was, anyway. Was Facing the Giants one of the ones that you... No, I always get Facing the Giants and the other one confused. What? Facing the Giants? You mean Football. Remember the Titans? Remember the Titans is the one I'm thinking You know what? Of. We watched Radio and we watched... I honestly can't remember. He also did a thing where it would be... He called it Star Wars Week. I mean, it gets a high school class. Like, it's not that difficult. But he... With every movie we watched, you had like a... Um, a, a paper to fill out to kind of like you know as you're paying attention to it um and but star wars week where we is where we took like a monday through friday we watched episodes four five and six but they were like no notes we had to take it was like just a joy which was fun anyway i'm pretty sure we watched city lights he he might have done what we did when we watched birth of a nation which ugh, it was one of those like you have to watch it and at least like in my East Tennessee public school education, they acknowledge the racism um, and that blackface is bad. Like they, you know, it, I thought it was done appropriately, but also there were times where the coach would just like fast forward it and just tell you what was happening because it's a very long movie. And a lot of the things are just like so bad. Um, so he might have done some of that with this movie. Um, anyway. I know I've seen it before. I'm thinking that's where it is. That's exciting. This is the first time I have seen it. Um, so I was really excited to check it out because it's one of Chaplin's best loved ones. And I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I adored this movie. So um, yeah. I'm really excited to get into it. Yeah. I'll hit you with that plot summary. The sweet, sweet plot summary. 
What if we recorded a second podcast that was just plot summaries, but like ASMRE or like bedtime story e? I mean, our original podcast is doing phenomenally well. So, anyway, <clears throat> plot summary: City Lights. The tramp is caught sleeping on a newly unveiled statue, but escapes to explore the city. He buys a flower from an attractive blind girl woman who mistakenly assumes he is rich. He later saves a drunken millionaire from suicide, and the two become friends and explore the city that night. After the millionaire gives him money, he is able to continue his ruse with the blind girl, buying lots of flowers and giving her a ride in the millionaire's car. When the millionaire sobers up, he is no longer recognizes the tramp and throws him out. The tramp discovers that the blind girl is about to be evicted and pledges to pay her rent. However, he is fired that day at work. To get the prize money to pay the blind girl's rent, he enters into a boxing match but fails to win the money. Later, the tramp encounters the millionaire, who is drunk again, and therefore remembers the tramp. The millionaire gives the tramp money to pay for the blind girl's rent and an operation to restore her sight. However, burglars steal the rest of the millionaire's money, and when the police arrive, the millionaire cannot remember giving money to the tramp because he's been struck on the head. The tramp runs and evades the police, giving the money to the blind girl and promising to come back to her before he is arrested. Months later, when the tramp is released, he goes to visit the blind girl's new flower shop. She has had the operation and can now see, but doesn't recognize the tramp at first since he isn't rich and handsome like she imagines. When she brushes his hand, she realizes who he is and explains that she can see now. And they both smile. Yeah. Yeah. Very iconic ending there. Um, uh, the other thing that I thought of while you were reading that is, when's the last time in a movie you saw a good old, like, blonk in the head that made someone forget their memory? That's <laughs> it fair. feels like it's just a great... A great little trope. Movie trope. Yeah. Well, here's the thing is that like daily soap operas have a little bit adopted oh, that, like yeah, the amnesia, amnesia angle. Yeah. I love an amnesia angle. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, what happened? Yeah. So what were your initial thoughts rewatching this movie, Hannah? Um, it's really funny. It's so the physical comedy is like pristine i mean brian and i were like laughing out loud even that first scene with um where he's getting off the statue and gets stuck and basically this it's like the sword of one of the the soldiers or whatever in the statue gets like um stuck through his pants and he's just hanging there i mean it yeah just the comedic timing is perfect um he has yeah it's this is not like i think pantomime is um i mean by nature it's a it's a a hyperbolic art like it's everything is bigger maybe not grandiose but um on a larger scale than real and so sometimes that makes it you know cheesy it's it's hard to maintain i guess like truth and integrity in the believability of the actor um, and his role and also be funny. And I, it was, I mean, it was like, (laughs) or there would be times where like, you know, what's coming, like, you know, what's about to happen. And it's still so funny. And it's like 
almost funnier because it goes on a little longer than it should. The um, telegraphing of the jokes where like yeah. three to five seconds in advance, you realize where it's heading. Mm -hmm. But then there's so much joy in the execution and seeing how the physical comedy is acted. Um, it's just phenomenal. Um, so this is certainly my favorite Chaplin of the ones that I've seen. Chaplin's got sort of a strange arc to his career, not unlike the other uh, silent comet, uh, silent uh, comedy guys of this era. But basically how it works is the industry is rapidly evolving at this time. So Chaplin really breaks out in like the mid 1910s doing two reeler comedies, which is two reels of film. Um, about 20 minutes in length, and he produces hundreds of two-reeler comedies. They're like, I think 1915 is his biggest year. He doesn't direct all of them, but he stars in like 60 in a single year. Dang. It's crazy. That's like faster than one a week that they're putting these things out there. Mm. Varying in quality, as you sure. might assume, <laughs> but when you get that many uh, chances at bat, you're going to hit a couple out of the park so he is definitely he, does that is he the tramp in all of them like is that yeah so he establishes the tramp character very early on okay uh i believe in 1915 he he sort of unveils the tramp and that becomes his famous character that he uses in pretty much everything sometimes he'll play two characters one of whom is the tramp and one of whom is not but but uh, The Tramp is is a big hit. And in the 20s, he expands into some longer things. He moves beyond two reelers right around the time that Buster Keaton is also moving into slightly longer features. So it'll be like an hour to an hour and a half, maybe. Are he and Buster Keaton friends or rivals or frenemies? Oh, goodness. I do not know if they... They knew each other. I'm sure they... Surely they knew each other. Yeah. Respected each other, certainly, because there are so many similarities between the two of them. So Buster is a little less mean-spirited, generally, than the Tramp. The Tramp will, like, kick you if he doesn't like what you're doing. Buster's characters almost would never do that. But very similar in... The comedy being derived from them not really understanding so social norms. Um, That's and, relatable. Yeah. <laughs> That's some totally. relatable comedy and, right there. And one of the, I think, richest sources of any comedy is a character who doesn't understand social norms and not only is funny in their reaction, but points out how the social norms are somewhat ridiculous to begin with. Um, so I really appreciate that in this film and, and others of this era that the comedy is often of that nature. They were friends, according to oh, Google. Oh, that's They fun. got along well with each other. Yeah. They both, um, they, yeah, which is fun. So this movie is <laughs> 1931. So okay. sound movies become a thing in 1927. Mm, yes, the Chaplin, talkies. The talkies. Yeah, the talkies. 
Chaplin produces this knowing that sound pictures are getting quite large, but finds a bit of a compromise where this is not entirely as silent because it includes original music that's meant to go with the movie, as well as sound effects, um, but no dialogue. Um, that's no dialogue that's that's spoken audibly it's done using uh interstitial you mean like the charlie voice. brown voices of the the very first scene when you got the people oh, unveiling the statue true. and they've yeah. got those like wah, 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 charlie brown voices i love it yeah i forgot about that yeah. yeah so sound effects as opposed to to actual dialogue there and so chaplin it's really interesting to me how much chaplin as he gets more control over what he's creating, like he's directing like 32 reelers in the late 10s every single year and fulfilling these contracts for these companies that are hiring him to direct and star in two reelers. When he gets more control over his own work, he slows way down. He produces a total of two films in the 30s, and those are the two films that end up on the list. So he takes his time, painstakingly produced. I saw that the the first scene with the flower girl and Chaplin, they did over 300 takes over a period. They tried to film it over a period of about 15 months, and Chaplin felt that it wasn't white right because it needed to establish clearly that the flower girl thought he was rich and he wasn't quite sure how to portray that yeah. um and he also didn't like uh her performance very well uh at first so he made her do a lot of takes for this so um but yeah it's interesting to me that when he gets more control he slows down to this degree and like really takes a long time crafting these two movies, City Lights and Modern Times. Then in 1940, he does make a sound picture, his first to feature uh, dialogue, The Great Dictator. Um, still bears a lot of the hallmarks of his silence, but has dialogue, maybe somewhat awkwardly interspersed, but also very funny in the way it uses dialogue. He does this fake, uh german <laughs> he's like pretends he's speaking in german but just uses like the way german sounds without actually saying german words which and is really pretending to be hitler yeah so which is really yeah it's really funny in like pre i mean it's 1931 like it's 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 obviously there there's something brewing yeah but it's well, not great dictator is 1940 oh gotcha so, gotcha yeah. okay hitler's already rise, risen to power this film is 1931 yeah yeah, so, and The Great Dictator is sort of his last that's considered a classic. He does some additional stuff, including a movie called Limelight that I haven't With seen With Buster yet, Keaton? Is Buster Keaton. It's somewhat in involved. I don't know. Again, it was, yeah. it was in the Google blurbs of Were They Friends? Wonderful. <laughs> um, so that's sort of the arc of, of Chaplin's career. Um, the Tramp character, a little mean-spirited, but not entirely so and particularly in this movie has a lot of sweetness and uh much more dramatic depth than maybe you could go into with like the two reelers yeah they really spend time developing the dramatic arc of this 
And I think that he might just have his own sense of like justice or right and wrong. You know, he very much is kind, compassionate, um, protective of the girl. Um, and we can just keep calling her flower girl because we, we don't know if she hasn't. I mean, she truly that's how she's name. credited. Yeah. It's a blind girl is how she's credited. A blind girl. Yes. Okay. And then a millionaire. Ah, the other. Okay. Which makes sense because he's the tramp. But because I, I mean, obviously, like this is a relationship that begins with deceit, right? He's immediately taken by her. But I don't ever think like. I mean, usually my my skeevy radar is like off the charts, but I don't really get that from him. I don't think he's like yeah creepy well, or weird. I think he that he <laughs> does have like true affection for her and is like, but I'm a tramp. And so part but, of it is a miscommunication. Sure. So that first scene, she hears like a limousine door shut, basically that she assumes is his right. limousine, and so. It's not that it's a misunderstanding at first, but then in the next scene, he does deliberately deceive her into thinking right. he has more money than. He and does. he's just kind of, I mean, in his little trap. But yeah, I mean, I think like his affection towards her, though it's deceitful, it comes from a good place. Don't do this to people, but you know. Um, and and the way it's ways, very like sitcommy. I mean, it's very it's, sitcommy. Yeah. yeah, it's it doesn't feel creepy. Although it is kind of creepy. Um, but then with the millionaire, he, you know, he saves the millionaire from committing suicide and he's there for him. But then when the millionaire like react responds in friendship, he's like, oh, it, it kind of feels like, oh, I wasn't expecting anything out of this. Like there's I just wanted to save you. And then the friendship is there, but he definitely doesn't fit into this like extravagant millionaire lifestyle. I don't know. I found the tramp very likable. Um, and like he was the very clear protagonist kind of existing with his own sense of morality when sometimes the circumstances around him contradict that reality that that sense of moralism um but his like objectives were very clear the things he cared about were very obvious so it's interesting that i i i don't know any other um examples of this tramp character but i thought this just this one isolated um felt like a very complete person i didn't even though it's a complete person doing this over the top pantomime yeah it's yeah it's pretty representative i'd say of what the tramp character is and sort of the breadth of things i'd say in the two reelers he definitely leans more into the like the it's pretty much just the comedic sequences that you get in this movie and not as much the dramatic sequences, maybe like a minute or two of the two reeler might be related to establishing a dramatic arc or a payoff at the end sort of thing. Um, so yeah, the, um, the tramp character I think is, is great. I like how this movie is very understandable. Like, you yeah. really and and that goes back to the, like the number of takes for that sort of establishing scene you can really tell that he put a lot of work into thinking about how the audience would perceive and make logical connections it uses very few intertitles I yeah noticed. thankfully um 
so it doesn't rely on them really heavily but everything is visual and visually established so you as the viewer know exactly what's going on at any given time um and it sort of establishes its own rhythm where you get into a bit and you're like, okay, this is going to be a physical comedy sequence for the next like three minutes. Right. And then, okay, we're back to the dramatic sequence. So it, it, it tells you how to watch it in a way that I really like. Yeah. That's a good point. It's funny. I'm thinking on, we, you know, we talked about this in our 2023 movies recap episode, but just like the comedy in 2023 was really good. Um, I kind of for the reasons why this is good. I mean, obviously, it's it, it like you said, it kind of toggles between the serious and the comical in ways that don't pull from each other or pull away, like diminish the other, um, but just make it like more robust of a story. It makes it more believable that you kind of have all these emotions, all these experiences tied together because ultimately, like this is a comedy. But if you have a comedy that's just hit after hit after hit after hit, then that's basically a full movie's length of a of a tool reeler or of, you know, a little five minute short, which honestly, a five minute short can have a lot of robustness to it, too. But that this isn't just Charlie Chaplin doing pantomime. This is a character in an experience. Um, and Chaplin does this. Not always, but frequently. Keaton does it too. Um, the jokes are always... There's a point behind the jokes. Yeah. There's a reason why the joke is being made. He's trying to say something with the movie as a whole and using the jokes as a vehicle to do it. So the... the um, I think the one of the clear messages here is about poverty and distribution of money mm. and so that entire boxing sequence is set up by the stakes of he's just trying to pay this girl's rent um he's um down on his luck fired from his job um and enters this gets in over his head and there's emotional stakes behind it of and it's trying to get a message across about how people who don't have financial resources have to do what it takes to survive while being incredibly funny. Right. Wonderful bits of this physical comedy. But the comedy has a message behind it in a way. Yeah. And holding those two things that are seemingly not fitting together neither diminishes the other, neither makes the other less believable, neither makes the other. Um, trite or or even like offensive. Like we're talking about class dichotomies, and you are like getting your butt stuck on a fake sword. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> this is um cringy. No, it's not that. It's it's sometimes deep messages need to be told in different ways and we have i mean obviously I, I can't tell you about the the state of the consumer or the watcher in 1931 but like even now you have very serious things getting across this message and these heart-wrenching tales that pluck at 
you know, it, it create just this like heartache and empathy. And then you have something like this that still highlights those deep things, but presents it in a new way where you're just like, yeah, not it. It makes it more believable when you have the same moral or story or theme being told through different devices, with different techniques, with different emphases on different parts of it and different. Yeah. It, it, it makes the overall message stronger that it can be presented in many different arguments, but ultimately that struggle is still there. And again, it's the, one of our two themes of the person's struggle to survive within their circumstances. Also, where are the social services for this poor blind girl? I know. Yeah, goodness. Um, also, she lives alone. That's great. Good for her. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, shall we get into some of the uh, gags here? Yeah. Um, we've referenced a few of them, um, but I did want to talk just on a gag by gag basis, like what what worked for you, what didn't. Oh, you want to go through? Them down oh, as, oh, as oh, went. oh! Yeah. You have yeah. them listed here in a gag order. <laughs> oh, I love it. Should we establish our gag order for this and and rank them? Or yeah, just that, say them okay, one after the just other. Say them one after the other. You're not that committed to the bit. I'm committed to the bit, but it's like you're gonna give a list of like ten things and expect people to hold them in their heads. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay. So first in our gag order, we're going in movie order. Is the gag order? Uh, the statue with the sword bit where you get stuck on the sword with his pants. And then pen, so funny. The great bit to I, open. I think what's what what's so funny about it, I mean, is that he kind of he does two things. He he does the one thing where he just pretends he's just hanging out. I mean, literally hanging out, but he's just like, Oh, nothing to see here. Like the whole group of people isn't staring at me. I'm just gonna mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second is when he treats, it's like a trio of three soldiers or whatever in the statue. And he kind of treats them as if they're alive. Like, hello, sir. Like, hello, hello. <laughs> the third really funny thing. I just forgot about this. <laughs> when the national anthem plays <laughs> and everybody in the audience is yelling at him for ruining this reveal. And then they all stop and put their hands on their hearts. <laughs> and he, even as he's suspended by the sword, like takes off his <laughs> that was really funny. My favorite is the once he finally gets off the statue as he's walking past it to escape, he gives it such a wide berth. <laughs> like an unreasonable like ten foot berth to this thing, as if it could hook him again at any moment. And, and like just look also as if it could hook him and also like as if it would like physically come at him, not just be there. Like, yeah. Hey, I got my eyes on you. Oh, so good. It's really funny. And again, is a little bit of an establishing of this is a movie about power. <laughs> you know, you got that. Yeah, uh, this might be reading is. a little bit, a little bit into it, but starting with these heroic figures with swords and the tramp, like getting stuck on them. There's, um, there's something to be said there about like, power the tramp doesn't respect or respond to the power structures that have been imposed the same power structures that were imposed 300 years ago still apply to some degree today 
that sort of thing. And I think there's a little bit of can draw some of the themes from the movie, even from this first gag. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. The next gag sequence, the chaplain and the millionaire almost drown while the millionaire is trying to commit suicide with this rock and chaplain, uh, saves him, but then gets tied to the rock himself. They both fall in the water. (laughs) Chaplin climbs on top of the millionaire to get out. Yeah. I think this one was like a slow burn, and then it crescendoed with um, the millionaire decides, you know, to not kill himself, so he tosses the rock in the water, but it gets hooked on the tramp. And just the, like, like the the walking came to the neck to pull a bad act off stage. It just like whoop like launches him in, and he goes like fully vertical or horizontal. How heavy do you think the rock actually was? Do you think it's like they're using a foam rock and he's just throwing himself? Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. it's it's to his neck. There's yeah, yeah. You can't. It's definitely not full weight. Maybe there's a little bit of weight to give him like a cue, but oh, well, I don't know. We we talked in our general or our. What was the Buster Keaton one we watched? Uh, the Sherlock Jr. Yeah, we talked about Sherlock Jr. All of the danger. Oh, yeah. Buster stunts. Keaton would. Yeah. Yeah. I like to think Charlie Chaplin's. A, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was just enough to give it a pull. But um, yeah. And then just the comedy of errors of the two climbing out. And, you know, uh, or when the millionaire is still drunk and he's like not trying to fall in anymore, but he keeps almost falling and Charlie's like pulling him. Like, I think that, I mean, pantomime is so difficult, but partnering is also really difficult. And I thought that all of these partner scenes between the two of them were so, yeah, so excellently done. I've not seen this guy that plays the millionaire in anything else. And it might be because this was sort of his first thing and what are you going to do if silent films are your thing and it's already 1931 you know well, he had a really great mustache so i'm sure he'll do fine in life or did fine in life i bet he's dead next gag the cigar gets lit on both ends uh <laughs> as so the millionaire is smoking a cigar and then holds his cigar accidentally in front of the tramp's mouth the tramp accidentally lights the other end of the millionaire's cigar when he thinks he's lighting his own cigar. And so then the tramp ends up with an unlit cigar that he thinks is lit. The millionaire ends up with a cigar lit on both ends. And what I love is like we as the audience see it happening before even Chaplin realizes it. And so you're like, okay, like this is funny. And then his reaction is funny. And yeah, it's just, oh, that was great. Yeah, the object comedy in this. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. We'll get into another couple that I thought were were really funny, but just like misplaced objects. It's so visual and works so well for uh, silent comedy. Um, the next one would be uh, Chaplin eating the streamer. So this seemed to be like some sort of, I don't know if it was a New Year's Eve celebration or if it was just the, just this the is 30s. The, the, this is just the late this... 20s, early 30s, and they just throw streamers all it's the just, time. It's just wealthy people, constant, <laughs> constant revelry. Yeah. I thought this was so funny. <laughs> he's eating pasta and he's like sucking in the noodles and then accidentally gets some of like a balloon streamer and just keeps going and his eyes are looking around as he's taking in the scene and he just keeps going and keeps going and it's one of those where it's like it takes so long 
which could get you to a point of diminishing returns, but it never does. Like it just keeps so good. <laughs> it's really good. Really good. Oh man. Um the next one is the drunk driving bit. So the millionaire is driving drunk and they're that, like the weaving, way. weaving through things, and then Chaplin ends up uh, taking over when the millionaire ex- exclaims, "I'm not driving, am I?" <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah. I I thought this was fine, a little bit problematic, even on a like absent the problematic nature of it. I I didn't think it was like hugely funny, but yeah, yeah, yeah. nice little bit. It's yeah. it's we're we're doesn't overstay its welcome. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, <laughs> this next one is the hardest. I laughed. I'm probably going to laugh very hard trying to describe it as Please well. Please do. So <laughs> there's uh the tramp is at another party that the millionaire is hosting, and there's this uh chip dip that's this extravagant plate with this like huge like head-shaped mound of dip on it. That's some (laughs) foreshadowing there. The the tray gets taken away, and there's a bald man wearing a hat that looks just like the tray of dip. And so the tramp tries to dip his chip in the bald man's head, (laughs) and then the tray of dip comes back, and he, like, reacts violently, like, I will not dip my chip in this dip, sir. It's so good. <laughs> oh, goodness. That one made me laugh very hard. Uh, um, there's one where he's kicked out of the millionaire's bed. Um, so by the butler and the waitstaff, and he keeps trying to, like, come back because he's friends with the millionaire and doesn't really understand that the millionaire when he's sobered up, doesn't want him around because he's a very important millionaire. Do you think it's that he doesn't want him around or like truly doesn't remember him? I think it's probably he doesn't remember him, but also I think there's a point about the lack of empathy or wanting to figure out what the actual situation is. Like, how did this guy get here? It's just like, I'm a millionaire. I'm too important for this situation. You get out of here sort of thing. But there's also some empathy for the millionaire. I mean, particularly with the you're introduced with a a suicide attempt that, for being a comedy, is pretty thoughtfully handled. Yeah. Just in the the tramp's reaction to it, there's there's always a little bit of empathy for the millionaire as a person, um, while being quite critical of the way he acts in some parts. Really. Yeah, he's still a person. A person's a person. Um, the next gag here, the misplaced soap bit. So, the the foreman or or the tramp's boss <laughs> thinks that it's it's like a wedge of cheese that he's placed on a tray. But then there's a mix-up with the tramp where the tramp is using soap to, I guess, wash his face or whatever. And they get the soap and the cheese mixed up so that the uh, the foreman or the boss is, is eating a sandwich with soap in it. And Chaplin is using cheese to scrub his face. <laughs> and then this foreman starts like, you see his profile shot and he opens his mouth and just like big bubbles come out. 
were just like so unrealistic. <laughs> He's like yelling and yeah. bubbles are coming But out. it's like a true profile shot where <laughs> yeah. facing the side. And it's just like you could t- like it's one of those where it's like. I'm sure it was obvious to audiences at the time what was happening. And it doesn't matter that it's so fake because it's so funny. Another gag punching up to people in power. This movie has some real leftist credentials, I'd say. Yeah. You've got the um, criticism of wealth. You got the criticism of those in power. The cops are buffoons. And uh, and that's that's typical of comedies of this time. Chaplin and, and Keaton are quite often using cops as comedic elements and not to be taken seriously as um as good actors i guess um so yeah it's got some it's got some leftist chops here uh mm-hmm. definitely it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's quite strong um the uh the next gag is the unraveling sweater so the blind girl is trying to knit and instead of her ball of yarn she uses the tramp sweater. The tramp just sort of lets this happen because yeah. he wants her to be happy. <laughs> so Which sweet. is so sweet. Yeah. I love it. Um, so yeah, that's a very sweet one. And then the um, boxing, boxing sequence we had mentioned. Um, this goes on for a while, but it's well sketched where like they're are several different uniquely funny jokes about the way that this fight happens, where the first thing that the tramp does is just hide behind the ref and then occasionally get jabs in around the side. Yeah. Um, but it's a very, like, cowardly way to fight, which is, is sort of fun. But what use I... your use your brains, not your brawn. You know? Yeah, totally. Um, what I loved prior to this, so, you know, he gets in to the... Um, this whole boxing sequence because he meets a guy on the street and the guy's like, hey, if you throw the fight, we can split the winnings 50-50, which would be enough for him to save the girl. And um, then the guy he was supposed to fight gets a call that the cops are coming for him, so he flees. And so the boxing bosses bring in a new person for him to fight who's like not, you know, Charlie doesn't know this guy or the trip doesn't. And the way he like looks at him to try to gain his favor like he just like coy smiles and batting his eyelashes and oh, it's just <laughs> so funny or like the crossing the legs and the chin on the hand and it's just like oh hey buddy and then of course the guy's like no yeah um but if i win i can get all the prize money and he like sizes the tramp up and is like this is not yeah something that i need to throw yeah. and then the the falling down back and forth that at the end there where the the ref keeps on keeps on counting and yeah there are like several funny bits embedded in this uh this boxing sequence um there's another chaplain two-reeler that i like quite a bit i believe it's from 1915 it's called the champion and that one also culminates in a boxing match with some of the same jokes Mm -hmm. but um (laughs) I think that one is, is a little bit more, it, it feels a little more like improvised and loose, but there's a period where the the tramp keeps like 
falling over, but just for a second, and the ref is getting like really into like gearing up for the counting motion, but then doesn't get to do his counting like several times in a row. And then um, the ref falls over at one point, and the tramp starts counting for the ref. <laughs> so there's a, I, I would definitely, that's a 20 minute one. That's definitely worth seeking out. It's, it's one of my favorites of the, the two reelers I've seen from, from Chaplin. It's really funny. Um, but another, he's, he's really good at these, uh, these boxing gags, um, right up his, uh, his physical comedy alleyway, so to speak. Um, the last gag would be being chased by the cops, um, running away from, uh, the millionaire's house with the money that the millionaire's given to him, but the cops think that he has stolen. Um, so, um... Yeah, that one was was pretty good. I mean, it's a silent comedy chase sequence. Yeah. I don't know that there's anything super special about it, but it's fun. Yeah, it's one of the things that's like, yeah, this is well done. And that's kind of all you give it because everything is well done. But if it were done poorly, we would be like, what the heck, Charles? So those are the gags. The dramatic moments in here, the comedy almost feels like a mercy because of it's not necessarily super heavy subject matter wise, but the way it's handled just, I think the direction here is, is phenomenal on these more emotional beats and really making you connect with this characters and almost be like emotionally tied to their well being and the stakes in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was, sort of heartbreaking and really gripping in in that way um so yeah the the relationship with the blind girl is so sweet and tender and he is so kind to her and wants the best for her and willing to you know at the end here sacrifice himself for what she wants um and you know, helping her both with the finances for the rent and for the surgery that she wants because then she could see him, which is so kind. Well, so then she can see. Yeah. Like, I don't think, I mean, I think he loves her, but he also knows that she thinks he's someone else. And so I don't, it's not just that he's sacrificing his freedom and finances. It's that he's kind of, by allowing her to see, sacrificing or potentially putting at risk what they could have because she will then fully see him. She'll hopefully see his, the good things he's done for her, but she's under the impression that he's a wealthy man and not a tramp and, and of, of good moral character, which I think he is, but less traditionally. So, um, you know, her at the end, still looking for him and ultimately, you know, finding him um, is just so sweet that she still, I mean, we obviously don't know if they work it out or if they end up together or whatever. It's such a, like, quiet, tender moment to mm-hmm. end on. The performances in that last scene are so, so phenomenal. The face acting for both of them. And there's, like you said, there's very few intertitles. Like, there's not a lot gets put across without 
you know, express style. I think there's like one or two where it's like establishing, like, I'm just looking for him, you know, um, shows you that she's never. Also, what is this miracle surgery? Sorry. Yeah. Thing. <laughs> it's very along with the like getting blunked on the head and moving your losing your memory. It's yeah. very like silent comedy tropes, but in a way that doesn't really bother me. <laughs> you know, yeah, fair. Um, the. Um, yeah, OK, a couple of random things. So we talked about hearing a reference to money in old movies and maybe even old foreign movies and yeah. knowing how to adjust. Y'all yeah. should know I do this for everything. Every time there's a movie or a TV show set even in like the 90s uh, and they mention money in some regard, especially if it's like to the point where it's like a lot of money, I'm looking it up. I'm converting. I'm I'm going in there. I mean, my, there, yeah. Like I know that well, no, it doesn't matter. I, I've done this a lot. And so she is $22 behind on her rent, which is roughly $425 in today's money. The million you rent today for $425 in yeah, most places. Honestly. In a, in a big city like this. So and um also the millionaire, at one point, he's like, Could I will a thousand dollars cover it? That's over 19 grand now. Also to be a millionaire in 1931. <laughs> I, mean, quite a I didn't even make that conversion. Yep. Um, um, so fun. I also thought another random thought: the stoop outside the blind woman's apartment with like the barrel and the window and the staircase. The way that that's very carefully constructed to set up yeah. some of the scenes, yeah, is is really well. There's a lot of care taken for the details like that. Um. If the last random thought I had was that if gifts had existed when this movie came out, this would be an endlessly gift movie mm -hmm. because there's so many little funny reactions. It would really uh, be a gift to all of us. Uh, it would. It would. It would lead to lots of guffawing. Yeah. Gif guffaw. Like a laugh. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. No? All right. Well, any other uh, final thoughts on this movie, Hannah? No, I'm too busy thinking of another pun. Okay. I don't think I'll get one though. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I I think this movie is like. This is one of those that's on the list that. Okay. Well, let me preface. I have not seen a lot of silent film. I won't see a lot of silent film. Like I'm cool with that. I don't need to like have a very. I'm not going to show any work with the statement I'm about to make. I'm just going to say it and you can know it comes from a place of ignorance, but I'm pretty sure I'm also right. I think that this movie is not only a fantastic movie, but a really concise representation of the best of this era. And I just, it, it is, it is funny, but it has substance. It has phenomenal acting. It is well edited, created. Like there's so much going on here that is very, very well done. And I don't think that there's a lot, there probably isn't a lot more film from this era that you need to fully understand what was going on in film at this time. I think the, so in, in terms of silence, yes, I think you're right. This is a really good representation of 
one of the biggest types of movies, these sort of silent comedies. Um, I think with the other ones on the list, you're gonna get pretty much every type. Like this Passion of Joan of Arc has something different to offer than. Yeah, yeah I should have. Hold on. But, I, I did add it in the word comedy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Added in from a comedy. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 And then the only other thing, they're like the really, really early ones that don't really get on the list. They're quite short, but like the Georges Méliès, like A Trip to the Moon is the famous one with the rocket uh, hitting the moon. Yeah. The the picture of. So those types of things are a little different, uh, but not necessarily on the list. They're short, so I would recommend people uh, check those out as well. Um, but this is pretty representative and sort of the, the cream of the crop for like the, the Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd style, um, physical silent comedy. Um, it's really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Really wonderful. Big fan. All right. Our 2001 A Space Odyssey back mm. for the day. So you hear the line open the pod doors pal i don't think they say pod bay doors initially Mm -hmm. but you hear that several times throughout this opening sequence before hal goes homicidal spoilers and i yeah that's true but i mean it's it's, (laughs) it's an old movie and it's quite famous that hal goes also it's pretty well known we're a spoilers podcast um so you you hear that line several times, and I just thought it was neat how it like sets up that uh, that quite iconic sequence of open the pod by doors. How I'm sorry, I can't do that, Dave. Mm-hmm. That line is is sort of set up in advance. Um, great, great fast fact. Yeah, thank great you. fun. Ten out of ten. Sure. All right. All right. Um, subscribe to this podcast if you're not already we'd love to have you on our journey through the sight and sound hundred and the other various things that we do Mm -hmm. Um, rate us five stars if you rate us at all and do rate us and rate us five stars we're Um, not going to say don't rate us if it's not going to be five stars I'm going to say that well we can't stop people from living their truth even if their truth is wrong you can live your truth in your head and not by pressing buttons on your phone unless those buttons on your phone help our podcast we're just two people like living our lives trying to create a podcast that others will enjoy why you gotta do us that gotta do us dirty with a bad rating yeah you know again it would be wonderful if like you if you're disinclined to rate us five stars send brian a kind dm and say hey Always this is the only thing the holding me better. back from heaping praises and giving flowers is this or that. And we will hear you and might do something about it and might not because we're just living our truth out here. Uh, I can also be followed. I use Blue Sky, which is now open to the public. It is sort of an alternative to Twitter, which is going downhill i do still have twitter and post about our episodes and such so you can uh can follow me there if you want episode updates but i'm primarily on blue sky and letterboxd with uh movie uh ratings and commenting and conversation and stuff so 
quite enjoy Letterboxd as well. Those links will be in the episode description. Hannah, where can you be found today? Where can I be found today? Um, probably just trying to chip, dip some chips on people's bald heads. <laughs> so people should go to lavish parties that have uh, bald chip people. dip. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And bald All the best parties have yeah. bald people. Oh, of course. Of mm-hmm. course. Um, next week. That was not my best. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, fam. That I'm, is all right. I'm tired. Um, next week, we've got an Academy Awards preview episode. Ear, so ear, I'm ear. excited about that. We've got a special guest on. Special guest. We do this. We did this last year. We're going to do it again. We do this uh, basically game where we draft our favorite nominees. It's complicated. uh, It's complicated. I'm going to explain the rules very clearly this time. Um, Were they poorly explained last time? I feel like you weren't certain on you can pick any category in any order and you weren't clear on that before we started. That's fair. Uh, Well, I think the thing that's going to make it much less complicated is adding in a guest. (laughs) The guest, I think, will because um there are three people to pick in each category i think it'll make it richer richer discussion okay. uh so i'm excited about that it's really just an excuse to talk about all of the nominated movies and the elements of them that we responded to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and by nature of the nominees and who's nominated this year's podcast will have far less of me ranting about y'all hating on babylon yeah yeah that's great y'all um haters, haters yeah. out haters we love babylon this is a pro babylon podcast mm-hmm. um oh and so- now we can sh- oh ooh, sorry we can also share some of the thoughts on the movies we've seen since our oscar announcements oh that's true episode. that's true yeah. for example perhaps a movie that's way over high and a movie that should have been nominated a lot all right we'll get to that next week. We will see you then and have a great day.